Hi, I'm Mark Lynch of George Washington University and the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEPS Conversations podcast, where we talk to leading scholars in the field about their research and about events and about whatever comes to mind. Uh, with me today is Professor Jillian Schwedler of Hunter College and uh, non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. And um, Jillian, welcome to George Washington University. Thank you. So you and I have been studying Jordan uh, for a long time, and uh, I know you, you travel there frequently, and you're working on a book about Jordan. Can you just uh, tell me a little bit about what you think about Jordan today? What, what has changed in the years that we've been following it? What hasn't changed? And what are people not seeing that they should be seeing? Well, there's a lot there, of course. Um, so when we first landed, when I first landed in Jordan, which is when I met you in the mid-90s, um, Jordan was already in the process of numerous changes unfolding. It had the political opening or the reopening, because of course it had a political opening in the 1950s, but it had a political opening in 89. Um, but even more important, and then we saw that process begin to reverse, and that's been widely written about. But other processes were taking place, and so the city of Amman was expanding vastly, um, and so areas that were still farmland, like on the Fifth Circle and the Sixth Circle, very quickly disappeared. And that process had actually started several years before the mid-'90s, but it really was sort of, I landed there in the process of a period of extraordinary change politically and economically, um, a lot of the attention in the political science literature had focused on the political side, so the political parties, the opening, the subsequent closing down, the narrowing, etc., the reversals, choose your language. But there were also these other processes that were started under King Hussein, but they really expanded dramatically with um, the king's death in 1999 and his son Abdullah II coming to power. and. Uh, the shorthand term for it is really the neoliberalization of a lot of things. And what that meant is sort of changing investment schemes. The city began to change shapes dramatically. Parts of the city were refurbished. Other parts of the city remained neglected. But the whole city expanded wildly. So I think that part of the story gets lost often when we're just thinking about the politics of the country. And it opens up a lot of interesting angles. Well, let's, let's talk about that. So when, what, what does it matter that uh, the urban landscape changes? I mean, we all remember, you know, the city growing out to the airport, right? And all these new circles and, and everything changes in the social life and the political life and the economic life. Um, but how does it matter politically? Well, when we think of political inclusion or political engagement, we often narrow it really down to the ability to have elections, to vote, and for those elections to actually mean something. We all know that the king's making final decisions at the end of the day, but there was some political opening. If you think of sort of uh, politics being the distribution of resources and investment in certain areas, the areas that get left out um, that's a very political question, why certain areas get left out. So as the city expands to the airport, as Zarka, which used to be a separate you know, city center, is now just a suburb and is increasingly not even at the edges of Amman, um, you think of things like what kind of bus lines go there, what kind of infrastructure serves those communities and facilitates them to get in and out of the city. And you'll see, if you look at these uh, infrastructure questions, that there's, there's certain areas that serve serve certain kinds of projects um, where the infrastructure is terrific and the fountains are now full of water again and there's beautiful sculptures on the circles and it's all freshly painted and there's very large other parts of the city that a lot of people 
that are not Jordanian don't ever see. Um, right. If you're, if you're a businessman, you can fly into the airport, go do your business in a fancy hotel, and never see... No, never see. In fact, you can actually have a sort of very mediated experience of cultural authenticity. So, for example, they might take you down to see the Roman ruins or take you out to the desert to see the desert castles or have tea with the Bedouin um, and interact with the sort of, you know, Jordanians in that kind of way. But it's a very mediated experience. And then you're back at your hotel and, you know, having meetings in, in the, you know, various Irish pubs and martini lounges and this very sort of upscale, exciting, dynamic experience, and you leave thinking, wow, there's an art scene, which there is, and it's vibrant. There's a nightlife scene, which there is, and it's vibrant. There's so much going on. There's a skateboard park, the Seven Hills Skateboard Park. There's all these really exciting, interesting things, but it's just a piece of the city. So if you recognize that huge chunks of the city are completely left out of that kind of investment in infrastructural development, revitalization, then the question of politics becomes immediately evident. The have-nots not only know that they don't have, but they see what it is they don't have. And then I found that many, many people that are what you would consider the have-nots are excited by this image because it gives them something that they can look forward to being a part of. Right? So not everyone is necessarily alienated by it. But a lot of people do seem to be very much angry and alienated by, by it, particularly the basic infrastructures, roads that aren't being repaved, parks that sit and, um, you know, there's, there's no water for the plants and the plants are all dead and then the dead plants just sit there. And that's where their kids play with broken glass and plastic bags all over the place, whereas other parts of the city are just beautiful. There are a lot of parks, um, like the King, King Abdullah Gardens, which is way in the west, but there's a lot of parks which are open to the public and there's, you know, during the World Cup they broadcast the games and this is something everybody loves. But they're interesting because they're split places that tell a particular story mm -hmm. of our national history. You're confronted with the greatness of our country and this uh, murals of the arc of our history, yeah. etc. And again, if you start to think about you know, what's being conveyed to citizens there, what parks are in good shape, what parks aren't in good shape, where are there roads, where mm -hmm. there's bus service, bus service or not, um, those are really political questions. But how new is this actually? I mean, we all remember, uh, you know, even back in the 90s that uh, you could go to Shmeisani, you could go to nice districts, but East Amman was, you know, these rotting neighborhoods and horrible schools. And, and there was a real Jordanian-Palestinian dimension to that, an ethnic dimension to it, right. but also a real class dimension. And, and that's been there uh, for a very long time. So why is this fundamentally new? Well, it, it is and it isn't new. It's new that the pace of it has changed exponentially. It really became important in the late 80s and early 90s. So when I arrived there in 95, it was already underway. So we have seen a change since then, but it was already underway. Um, and you're right, there were always upscale districts um, and places where the clubs that other people couldn't, average person couldn't afford. Um, and that's still the case. What is different is the, the emergence of this, these new sort of the new economic elite that aren't necessarily connected to the old economic elite. So you had the sort of old, you know, families, and some of them still have portions of them that are part of the new elite, but you have something you've seen elsewhere, and, and that's one of the, the takeaways from my research is these patterns aren't specific to the Middle East. These are patterns happening in lots of cities. But you have the emergence of a hyper, hyper wealthy class that flies away to Europe for weekends instead of going down to Aqaba for weekends. But meanwhile, the actual middle class has largely disappeared. And yes. then there's enormous economic hardship in Jordan now. Uh, you know, people who, you know, 20 years ago were comfortable 
and living in nice neighborhoods and not super wealthy, but they were educated cosmopolitan and pretty, you know, pretty well off. I mean, pretty well off by local standards. That class seems to be the most decimated by these changes. I think that's true. And again, I think this is something that's happening around the globe in a lot of places. So to just to give an example, well, you know, in the mid and late 90s, if I would go out with Jordanian friends to one of the most expensive clubs, we would spend two or three hundred dollars a night, which is very expensive for me and certainly expensive for anyone else in Jordan. The top clubs in Jordan now, I can't afford to go to. You really need to drop $1,000. First place, you have to have a membership to get in in the first place. Then you have to reserve a table, and there's bottle service. So that is created not because there's a need for it, but be, uh, need for it as a venue, but there's a need for it to be exclusive places that drop away people like you and I who can, on a splurge, spend $100 in a night. I was, never, I was never cool enough for those clubs. Yeah. Um, I remember something that you uh, you wrote about a few years ago. Uh, kind of another aspect of this was that kind of the downtown of Amman, uh, the Husseini Mosque, uh, that was the the center of political protest. That's where you did things if you wanted to get the king's attention. And I, if I correct me if I'm wrong, but I recall your argument then was that the construction of all the new uh, subdivisions and the new road structures, uh, one of the effects of that, whether intended or not, was to basically isolate that downtown from. Um, this new elite. Is that, is that, is that, do I remember that correctly? Yeah, that's correct. And, and it seems to be, seems to have been unintentional. And I'm fairly confident of that from talking to urban planners and some of the architects involved in these projects who will convey their, you know, they don't have a political stake in it. And, you know, maybe, maybe they will put thought into it as we start talking about it. But for example, they'll say, no, no one told us to close down this area where protests happen. They will say things, the Abdun Bridge is built to carry tanks. So they'll convey things like that. The road that goes past the King Hussein Medical Center, which is vastly widened, is created that way to function as an airstrip if needed. So they'll convey that kind of information to you. Um, that, so that's changed. But there doesn't seem to have been any you know, plan to sort of uh, make protests less disruptive. But it's had that effect. So it used to be the downtown was you know, it's a municipal center, which it still is, but that's kind of where a lot of things happened, either downtown or close to it. So if you pack that downtown area with a thousand people, you kind of shut down everything and got everyone's attention. As the economic center moved first to Shmeisani, which it already had done by the time we got there, um, and then farther out, it's harder and harder to shut down the economic district because there is no single economic district. And a lot of the really big investments are in these high-rise buildings, some of them with standalone parking lots that are gated. Um, so you could protest outside of it, but it's hard to be disruptive mm -hmm. of commerce in the same way because the nature of that commerce has changed in so many ways. So when you start talking about protest, I mean, it inevitably then brings us to, you know, kind of the standard, you know, political analysis question, you know, the Arab Spring, the Arab Uprising. You know, we, we know that there was this unusually robust and enduring protest movement in Jordan since 2011. Um which I think many people have not paid a great deal of attention to, but um, but you know, so what do you think uh, the effects of this have been? I mean, you know, what what has the the Arab uprising done to Jordanian politics? So it's a great question. It's a complicated question. The first thing I'd say is uh, the protests that emerged in early two thousand eleven emerged out of groups that were already organizing together. So the the PFLP, the Wehda. 
um, leftist coalition was already talking to the Muslim Brotherhood, they had both boycotted the 2000, fall 2010 elections and said, we are going to call for a constitutional monarchy. So when the protests emerged in, in Tunisia and elsewhere, they were already doing this kind of activity and had been doing it before, calling for a constitutional monarchy, not an end of the king, but you know, specifically we want him out of power. It did take up a momentum, um, as you would expect, but um, there were different kinds of protests that emerged. So on one hand, there were protests that were, for the, for the first time, more explicitly critical of the king, which was significant, but, and I don't want to make this too simplistic, but you had protests from different areas. So you had that Muslim Brotherhood, leftist political parties, professional associations that had been long critiquing um, the regime and demanding reforms of various sorts. And they were out there very quickly, and they were already organized. They, they have routines of mobilization, mm -hmm, including mm -hmm. people they can get out. So they were able to continue to do that, and they began to do it weekly instead of a little bit more spaced out pace. But, but, but for the regime, this was standard stuff. This was standard, they, exactly, yeah. standard. Um, what was more interesting was you had these Herak groups and other tribal areas, which, you know, it's a misnomer to think the tribal areas had always been purely loyal and never critical of the regime. In fact, they'd always been very critical of the regime. Um, in Karak and, of course, in Man, most famously, there'd always been centers of pushing back against regime policies. Um, they also emerged in Tefila, where they were critiquing the king explicitly, on a few occasions burning pictures of him. And that was unprecedented. My argument is the this never came together in a national movement because those two groups wanted different things. One wanted constitutional reform and more democracy, more participatory system, and the other wanted more of that old alliance of we give you loyalty and you give us stuff. And one of the things that began under Hussein and continued under Abdullah, and this is the economic the neoliberal policies, is this constant effort to sort of shrink the public sector. And so there's these areas that expected, we give you loyalty and you give us jobs and other things, and as that gets whittled away, they're increasingly frustrated. And so their critiques were more, we want more of the old regime, where this other cluster wanted less of the old regime. All of this is sort of a back and forth, and had been back and forth for a period, um, but really I think a lot of it got shut down as the situation in Iraq and Syria just, you know, absolutely imploded, and particularly with ISIS, which is, um, you know, there have been minor efforts to do moves inside of Jordan. Um, the, the regime is on top of it and trying to prevent everything, of course. But even a lot of friends, leftist friends, and people that are very critical of the regime have said, you know, we really want the regime to provide us security. And so that's interesting. So I think a lot of that activity, first it didn't materialize because these different groups wanted different things from a protest movement. Um, and second, everybody just wants to be safe at the moment. So where, if anywhere, is there any political dynamism in Jordan today? I think there's a lot of work that's happened in is a number of these culture, independent cultural centers and artist enclaves that do um, cyber art and, and multimedia pieces, and they're also done by a lot of the activists that I've known for years and I've been interviewing and working with for years. Um, that are finding other ways to express dissent and do different kinds of projects that don't look recognizable as let's go protest, although they still do that. But they're doing other kinds of activities and trying to in include Jordanians in different kinds of dialogues about their future, um, self-consciously in ways that don't look like what people think politics looks like. But undergridding them, of course, is a message that your life and world can be different and you can have a hand in changing it. Well, great. Thanks, Jillian. Um, and uh, thanks for coming out uh, to, to Pomaps.
Um, this has been uh, the Pull Maps Conversation podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. We've been speaking with Jillian Schwedler of uh, Hunter College and the Atlantic Council. And uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you.